so good to be in the house this morning. We are going to spend a lot of time in the dirt today. I wore my overalls just for the occasion. Um, so much so that by the time we're finished, you're probably going to wonder if I'm subconsciously trying to get you a plant, to plant a garden. And maybe I am. But um, I'm just following the lead of the Master Jesus, who so often used things that we could touch and that we could um, see to help us understand bigger realities that are unseen. Am I like flipping in and out? Okay. Keep going, he says. Okay. Well, um, I have been captivated by God as the Master Gardener since I watched a documentary. The Biggest Little Farm. Has anybody seen that documentary? Oh, it's so good. This film follows nature videographer John Chesser and his wife Molly, a chef with a passion for food. And as good wives do, Molly invited John, that is, she convinced him that this was his dream too, um, into her big impossible dream of creating a farm where they could be directly connected to growing the most nutritious food Thank you. Okay. In a way that worked in harmony with nature. The documentary follows them through a seven-year journey of transforming, transforming a dry and lifeless 200-acre monoculture avocado farm into a biodiverse Eden-esque mega garden flourishing with acres of um, fruit trees and row crops and livestock, and they're all working in harmony with one another. When John and Molly purchased their farm, the land was completely desolate because the soil was lifeless and dead. Now, I didn't know that soil could be dead, much less alive. I just thought dirt was dirt. But I learned that the life in the soil is essential for the life of a plant. And the more life that's growing beneath the ground in the soil, the more nutritious the plant or the fruit that the plant produces. So in order for them to bring their farm to life, they had to resurrect the life in the soil. Did you know that in a single tablespoon of like a healthy garden soil, there's over 50 billion microbes that not only break down the organic matter and they transform it into minerals, into forms that the plant can use, They protect the plant against disease, and they're intimately connected to um, its growth and productivity. They cleanse and purify the soil from toxins, and then they even help the roots of different plants communicate with one another. Like, it's fascinating. John and Molly knew that the fruitfulness of their harvest would only come by bringing the life back to the dirt. And as I watched what was dusty brown death transform into lush, verdant fruitfulness, I could not hold back the tears because I was witnessing something deeply true and spiritual about our lives and the work of the Spirit in awakening us to our purpose here on the earth. As I considered the problems created on their farm by the strategies of men that were attempting to usurp God's design for, for fruitfulness and instead work the land until there was no life left in it, I felt like I was with, witnessing a picture of our hearts turned over and over again with the demands to produce 
until our hearts are dead from exposure, from overuse, from man-made fixes meant to kill the bad, but then the good dies along with it. Dry hearts treated on the surface, season in and season out in an attempt to quickly replenish so you can keep on producing that one thing you become known for, but the deep soil that should be teeming with life and the source of our fruitfulness is dead. And then the fruit right along with it. So I'm here to tell you this morning that that haunting in your heart for a life of purpose, to know that you matter, that you have something to contribute to this world that will bring some benefit, that is the desire placed there by God to draw you into a life of fruitfulness. So even in the still golden glory of Eden's perfection, God who is the consummate gardener, his nails still stained with dirt, showed Adam and Eve a world that was flourishing and perfect and good. And yet he essentially told them, here, take what I've started and add to it. I want to see your touch on what I've made. Bring it under your influence and tame this wild, wonderful world. The two of you, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. And God's heart for the influence and fruitfulness of his faithful ones is repeated over and over in scripture. As Noah was emerging to a world that had been reset by a, a, um, a flood of judgment and love, Genesis 9-1 records that God said, God bless Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. At 99 years old, God came to Abraham and promised him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will descend from you. Later, to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, God says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. Jacob's son, uh, or, yeah, Jacob's son Joseph, through a painful mess of dysfunctional family drama, was sold by his brothers and taken as a slave to Egypt where he was mistreated, mistreated he was imprisoned, he was falsely accused, and he was stayed that way for years. God had given him dreams of his fruitful future, but all he had known to that point was the, seemed to be that he was... Um, a delusional dreamer, not a destined deliverer. Until one day, when God used this dreamer to interpret his way out of that prison and into the palace as the prince of Egypt, there he began to flourish and he saved the lives of many as he prepared the nation um, during years of plenty for the coming famine. So in the years of his redemption, Joseph had two sons, and the second he named Ephraim, saying, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And I want you to remember that, not before the land of his affliction, not after the land of affliction, God has made me fruitful right in the middle of the land of his affliction. Later, after that, God used what his brothers meant to harm Joseph for their own salvation and deliverance. Joseph moved all 70 of his family members to the best of the land of Egypt, where they flourished in the middle of the famine. And as he neared death, Joseph's father Jacob blessed him with these words, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. 
You see, God intended to bring blessing to all nations through the vine of the descendants of Abraham. He intended for his presence, his governance, his love, his righteousness, his goodness to flow into the world through the fruit of this vine. And that vine was hardy and fruitful for 400 years in the land of Egypt, so much so that the Egyptians were threatened by their flourishing. And under a heavy yoke of of oppression, God's people cried out, And he sent the deliverer, Moses, to lead them out of the land of their suffering into the land of freedom and plenty. Psalm 80 describes the planting of this new nation this way. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root, and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. So God prepared the land, and he planted his people in it, giving them everything they would need for the flourishing, for their flourishing in a land of abundance. But as the generations go on, although they knew God, they didn't worship him as God, and they, and they didn't give thanks to him. And they, the people began to worship the gods of the nations around them. And they traded the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than, cre- than the creator. Their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened, and they were wholly corrupted and defiled, and they committed what's even shameful for us to speak about, all while calling themselves by the name of their God. God's heart is broken. Isaiah, the morning prophet, spoke of God's grief over his unfaithful people this way in chapter 5. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, He dug it up and he cleared the stones and planted the finest vines. He built a watchtower in the middle and dug out a wine press as well. He waited for the vineyard to yield good grapes, but the fruit it produced was sour. And now, O dwellers of Jerusalem and men of Judah, I exhort you to judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I already did for it? Why, when I expected sweet grapes, did it bring forth sour fruit? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and thorns and briars will grow up, and I will command the clouds, and the rain shall not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the plant of his delight." So God, in his wisdom and love, allowed that vine to be uprooted and taken into captivity into the land of Babylon. Yet God's heart to restore his children and make them fruitful was undeterred. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 23 says, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. So God brought them back, and he planted this vine again in the land he had promised them, just like Aaron talked about last week, about the remnant returning from Babylon to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple on that fertile hill. And then over 500 years later, Jesus, the fullness of, God, of the Godhead in bodily form, enters the story. And on the night before he was crucified, he shared a Passover meal with his disciples. And he's giving his closest command, companions, his boys, one final lesson, like a major download on kingdom truths before he has to go. And he makes this statement. I am the true vine. 
Jesus was declaring something that everyone at that table would have known was audacious and disruptive to their current paradigm, that he was the fulfillment of all God's intentions in choosing a vine for himself. In saying, I am the true vine, he was supplanting the nation of Israel as the vine through which the Spirit of God would flow into all nations on earth. No longer would their identity be attached to a blood lineage or a homeland or a nation. Jesus was now their life source. He was their homeland and their direct connection to God. And he was effectively declaring that now he was the embodiment of that faithful remnant. He was destined to undergo divine judgment for sin on a cross. He endured an exile three days in the grave, and he experienced a restoration to life through the resurrection as the foundation of a brand new Israel, inheriting all the promises of God afresh, every promise, a yes and an amen through Christ, the true vine. John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withered. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourself to be my disciples. So here, Jesus is extending the commission and the promise God made to his people from the very beginning over and over again that he would make them fruitful. And he's offering it like an invitation to us. His blessing of fruitfulness is now available to everyone through the true vine, Jesus. So what does this even mean And what, like, this invitation to join our lives into his and experience a life full of bringing glory to God through immense fruitfulness. This is important, though, because as we'll see later on in John, uh, our fruitfulness is connected to not only bringing glory to God, it's connected to our joy being made complete. It's the life of purpose and meaning that we are so desperately after. Now, there are people all around the world, and you guys know them, who are doing all manner of good works in the name of love and compassion and bettering humanity, but they're doing so like out of their own goodwill. And Jesus said that apart from him, we could do nothing. So I don't think that these good works that we could do our own is what he's talking about when he says that apart from him, we can do nothing. Um... So it seems to me that Jesus is offering us a life that is naturally unexplainable. He's inviting us into a way of living, a position inside the kingdom where we are continuously connected to his life. So much so that our lives begin to manifest the fruit 
of his very nature. He's inviting us to be someone that we couldn't otherwise be on our own without him and to do things that we otherwise could not do on our own. He says that if we remain in him and his words remain in us, that we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. So answered prayer is the natural result of our lives being joined with his. That our abiding and our asking and his answering are designed to be a continual flow of supernatural solutions into our everyday lives. Maybe you're like me, and at times you really struggle to see the fruit of answered prayers. And if so, I think this passage gives us a few things that we can consider and examine ourselves in. This really challenged me this week as I was studying. The first thing is, number one, are we asking? God could do it all without us. He could govern the world. He could subdue the earth. He could disciple the nations. He could heal all the broken, set all the captives free, trample on all the powers of darkness, but he doesn't. Instead, he invites us into this partnership of co-laboring where we work closer than side by side. We are in him, and he is in us, and then he moves through us. He could do it without us, but he doesn't want to. Because this whole thing was about God and man building a family on earth together. It's like he went out and he purchased a family farm just so the two of you could have the experience of working it together. Have you ever stood in the garden harvesting the fruit that you've worked so hard for with the people you love as the sun's going down? It's like one of the most fulfilling things on earth. And if you haven't, maybe that's your homework. Um, go play in a garden with your family. Maybe I'll see you at the greenhouse later today. Um, work it together. God is all about hands-on learning. I guarantee you that he will teach you something about his nature when you get in nature. Because creation prophesies, according to Romans 1, his divine nature being understood by what has been made. So co-laboring with God to bring his will on earth as it is in heaven is the whole purpose of prayer. Because if we share in the labor of sowing, we get to share in the joy of the reaping. And God loves to celebrate with his children. He loves to celebrate the increase with us. James 4 says, you have not because you ask not. And many of us ask not because we believe not that it matters. But I'm telling you this morning that Jesus Christ is not a liar. And he says right here in John 15 that whatever we ask will be done for us. Our asking matters. James goes on to say that when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. But Jesus already accounted for our short-sightedness in prayer with the contingency, if you remain in me. When we remain in Jesus, we are praying as one connected to his life. He shares with us his thoughts. Scripture says we're seated with him in heavenly places. So he's giving us heavenly perspectives as we pray. 
Scripture says we have the mind of Christ. So we start to think and to reason like him. He gives us gifts of wisdom and discernment, of love and generosity. Our prayers are going to flow out of his will when we're connected to him because we are in him and he is in us. But if we are choosing to remain connected to the world and to our culture with only an occasional visit to the vine to recharge when we're desperate, we don't know what he's thinking. We don't know what he want, how he wants to move. We're just shooting in the dark with those prayers. Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So for his words to remain in us, There's a responsibility. We have the responsibility to cultivate the soil of our hearts so that it is good, fertile soil, ready to steward what he gives us. And like John and Molly um, and their biggest little farm, I think many of us look at the soil of our hearts and see a landscape that's dry and depleted at times. We keep receiving the word, but it doesn't take root, let alone bear any fruit. So let's check out this quick story about dirt that Jesus told. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. As usual, his boys were perplexed and asked him about it, and he explains the parable to them like this. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky soil or ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, um, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So what kind of soil are you? Maybe your heart is like the path. It's been so trampled on by people that it's as hard as concrete. And the water of the spirit Um, When it falls, it just rolls right off, and like seeds don't even have a chance to permeate it. Maybe um, your heart is full of rocks. The debris of living, hurtful words and accusations hurled at you litter your soil, or maybe it's baggage that you've carried in by your own choices. Whatever it is, there are lies and agreements that clutter up your field, And so you receive the word of truth, but it can't grow roots because you are shallow soil. So when the heat is turned up and the, and the, um, the hard moment comes, you fall and your faith withers. Maybe your soil is full of thorns sown by the enemy right in the middle of all that good seed. You love Jesus. You even spend time in his word. You want to be fruitful. But the enemy has planted distractions to soak up your energy and your attention and the resources, and they choke out your fruitfulness. 
And although you are planted, you aren't doing what you were created to do. You're not reproducing 160, 30 times what has been sown into you. So in my fascination with bringing dead soil back to life, do you know what I've learned? All it takes is a little water, the Holy Spirit, to soften that hard soil. You, need, you may need a little tending. When the gardener shows you those lies, the rocks, you just pick them up one by one and you cast them out. When those weeds pop up and they start sucking the life from you, you've got to pull those suckers while they're small. Has anybody tried to weed a garden with weeds up to here? It's a nightmare. You need a weed whacker and a husband. Um, Tend your soil. We had a neighbor tell us that the reason that his garden was so bountiful was because he saw his shadow in it every day. We've got to tend our hearts every day. And then you just have to start planting right where you are. I know that seems counterintuitive to plant into dead soil, but if you plant the right seed, a cover crop, not only does it crowd out the weeds from growing, not only does it begin to replenish the soil with vital nutrients, the cover crop can actually feed the microorganisms in the soil that are needed to bring that soil back to life. And when the time comes for you, when you're ready to plant that fruit-bearing seed, Um, The cover crop becomes like green manure that gets turned over, and then as it decomposes, it becomes the food that the microorganisms need that they break down and return vital nutrients into the soil that will make that plant very fruitful. So I think the metaphor is very obvious, but beyond positioning yourself to receive the rain right here in church every week, beyond tending your heart every day by casting out those lies and cutting out distractions, you recover the soil of your heart by planting the word of God right there in your dead soil and watch it cover over your barren places and begin to revitalize them. Watch it grow and crowd out those weeds that once choked you out. Watch it return exactly what you need to flourish right back into your soil. And then, as it's turned over and over within you, watch it become the fertilizer that you need to become fruitful, to become that fruitful crop that will bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times what was sold or sown. And when I say plant the word, friends, I'm going to step on toes. I mean the full counsel of God's word. I love having, like, my Bible on my phone. Um, I like to keep track of, like, I like to do Bible in a year plan, which is actually Bible in three years most usually. And I love that because it keeps, I know what to read, and it keeps me on track. But if we are going to cultivate rich soil, For fruitful lives, we cannot rely on a steady diet of seven-day reading plans that give us snippets of verses taken out of context from the larger passage or book with short little encouraging devos attached. This is what Paul calls spiritual milk. There's a time to rely on spiritual milk, and if you are new in the faith, I bless that. That's good. But if we're going to mature so that we are ready to reproduce, we've got to start eating solid food. We've got to consume the book in its entirety. Do you know what happens in the natural when we choose to eat meals that are quick and easy and make us feel good? 
you know, a steady diet of Pop-Tarts and pizza rolls and chips and Mountain Dew. We get sluggish, we gain weight, we get sick, and we're no longer fit to be a warrior. We're eating like my seven-year-old at grandma's house. And that is exactly what it's like spiritually when we only consume the quick, easy meals that make us feel really good parts of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. The word is meant to build us up and to challenge us and to convict us and to correct us and to train us. It is not meant to comfort us in our dysfunction. Jesus did not die to leave us in our sin and make us feel good about it. Because we're only, but we're, we're only consuming what is quick and easy and tastes good. We are spiritually overfed and undernourished. And we have an army of saints who are not only unequipped for the battle because we are in a war. Some of them are fighting for the wrong team in Jesus' name because they don't know what the book actually says. So now I'm done stepping on toes. Moving on. Right after Jesus declares that he is the vine, he says he his father, the vine dresser, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the words I have spoken to you. The word prune here means to cleanse of filth and impurity, to prune trees and vines of useless shoots. Jesus tells his disciples that they are already clean. They have been cleansed and pruned by the word he has spoken to them. So if you position yourself continually in that word of God that day, to get the daily word from Jesus, you will save yourself the pain of pruning many a branch in your life that is wild and out of order. This word will purify you so that you don't have to learn through discipline. A good father disciplines the son he loves. But how many of you parents know that you offer a word of correction and an opportunity to yield to it before you move on to discipline? So how much more God? He is a good father. He wants us to learn the easy way. And the word purifies us, and it will make us good soil. But even so, I found this fascinating. A good vine dresser will yearly prune his vines. Jeff Cox, in his book, From Vines to Wine, says it this way. Overcropping in a given year reduces the fruitfulness of buds in the subsequent year. So the best way to guarantee that your vines produce adequately year after year is to prune them properly year after year. You may have noticed that the old unkept apple trees have the habit of bearing large, large crops of small apples one year and few, if any, apples the next. The primary reason is that a tree has run riot and has been left unpruned and neglected. This off year is the tree's attempt to regroup and build up its resources. The same holds true for a vine. An unpruned vine will have from 10 to 100 times the buds necessary for a good crop of quality grapes. The vine struggles for quantity, thus maximizing its potential to reproduce. The venter struggles for quality. Pruning is the way to avoid overcropping. 
You see, in our noble attempts for meaning and purpose, we will throw out branches in all directions. So much so that if those branches were allowed to grow and bear fruit, not only would we find ourselves with a whole lot of bland fruit, but we steal from our future fruitfulness. We then have to shut down or go dormant for whole seasons in order to regroup and to simply recover. Our Father wants us to bear fruit season after season, glory to glory, strength to strength, and he's not after copious amounts of lackluster fruit. He cuts back so that his life can flow into the places that he sees are going to be abundant. Sweet fruit. Fruit that when tasted by an unbelieving world helps them to experience the true nature of the vine and the vine dresser. Guys, sometimes pruning can look and feel a whole lot like God is trying to kill us. You laugh because you know it's true. And it's only further along when we start to experience the good fruit growing from that painful season of cutting back that we realize maybe God wasn't trying to kill us after all. We see his kindness in preparing the abundance to and preparing us for the abundance to come. And then as branches start to grow again, he trains them. According to the one Bible commentator, the Greek word for branch in John 15 emphasizes the ideas of tenderness and flexibility. If we're going to be a branch that bears much fruit, we have to stay tender and flexible because he's training us to be conformed to the image of his son. The only branches that snap during this process are old, dead wood. So are you flexible in his hand? Do you bend and conform as he moves upon you? Are you tender? That can be a really scary word for a whole lot of us because hard is protected and hard is safe and tender is exposed and it's vulnerable. But if there's anyone in the world who can teach us how to be strong enough to endure the pain of the cross and yet tender enough to say, and Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing in the midst. It's our true vine. Beth Moore writes in her book, Chasing Vines, the vine dresser establishes a training system for his vine, or he is no vine dresser at all. This is where the trellis enters the picture. When the trunk of a vine reaches around 12 inches tall, the vine dresser ties to it some, some form of stake. If he fails to do so, all hopes of a quality harvest are vanquished. With every three or four inches of growth comes another tie. The vine dresser follows suit with the vine's horizontal shoots, tying them securely and strategically onto trellis wires. Stroll through the rows of any functioning vineyard, and you'll notice that the posture of a grapevine is a direct reflection of the apparatus it's attached to. Simply put, the way it's trained is the way it will grow. Whatever form it takes, the growing vine needs adequate support. The branches cannot bear the weight of immense fruitfulness on their own. Wooden ties, these are essential to a growing vine. Wood and nails, these were essential to the true vine. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, Jesus said. Less than 24 hours after voicing these words, the vine dresser would nail the true vine to wood. This was all part of the eternal plan. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
he has put him to grief. Our vine was nailed to a cross, and that cross is our training system. He tells us to daily take up our cross and follow him. The cross is where we learn to lay down our old sinful nature, our selfishness, our unforgiveness, our independence, our shame, our unbelief, our lust, our greed, our pride. And we open ourselves in complete surrender to our Father as we confess, not my will, but yours be done. The way of the cross is the way of humility, of sacrificial love, mercy, and radical forgiveness. It's foolishness for those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for us who are being saved. He taught us that the only way that we find our life is to lose it, to truly live our self-obsession and our self-protection and our self-preservation and our self-promotion has to be nailed to that cross so that we can get set free from us, the world and all its empty promises to our ego become dead to us. Paul, who was arguably one of the most fruitful followers of Jesus, says in Galatians 6, 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It is hard to get haughty about the fruit from our branches when we are being supported and stretched out east and west along the pattern of the cross. We become, like Jeff Cox writes, vines stretched on their trellises, their arms wide open and welcome, or in a different light, resembling rows of the crucified. So branches tied along the, the cross of Christ produce fruit like forgiving the ones who've pierced us. Peace in the middle of a storm. Humility on our mountains and in our valleys. Gentleness when we're challenged. Kindness when we're cursed. Self-control when we're fuming. Generosity on every occasion. Faithfulness in our mundane. Love even to our enemies. Joy in every circumstance, patience in our waiting, goodness, even when life hasn't been good to us. And it tastes so sweet. Some of you are hearing me, and you look around, and you see the place where you're planted, and it feels like maybe you've drawn the short straw. Maybe if you had a different family or a different job or a different past, if you live somewhere with more opportunities, you feel like so many aspects of your life were chosen for you, and those things are keeping you fruitless and small. But hear me, God desires for you to bear much fruit exactly where you are planted, like Joseph right in the middle of your land of affliction. In Acts 17, Paul says that God marked out the times and history and the boundaries of our lands. God planted you exactly in this place, in this season, to bear much fruit for his glory. And the really hard parts of our story, the suffering and the frustrations that we wouldn't choose, God is using them to bring about greater good and greater fruitfulness. It's the rocky parts of our story that produce the best fruit in us. Did you know that grapevines grown in rocky soil produce better fruit than those grown in fertile soil? 
In his book, Struggling Vines Produce Better Wines, Jamie Good writes, Making the vines struggle generally results in better quality grapes. It's a bit like people. Place someone in a near-perfect environment, giving them every comfort and all that they could ever want to satisfy their physical needs, and it could have rather disastrous consequences for their personality and their physique. If you take a grapevine and make it... Uh, make its physical requirements for water and nutrients easily accessible, then somewhat counterintuitively, it will give you poor grapes. Good explains that ideal soil gives the grapevine a choice. And given the choice, it'll take the easy way, and instead of going to the trouble of bearing fruit, give the grapevine a favorable environment, and it will choose to take the vegetative route. That is, it'll put its energies into making leaves and shoots. Effectively, it is saying, this is a fine spot. I'm going to make myself at home here. It won't be too bothered about making grapes. But make things difficult for the vine by restricting water supply, making nutrients scarce, pruning it hard, and crowding it with close neighbors, and it'll take the hump. It'll sense that this is not the ideal place to be a grapevine. Instead of devoting itself to growing big and sprawling, it'll focus its efforts on reproducing itself which for a vine means making grapes. God wants us to bear much fruit because he wants the life of the vine, Jesus, reproduced in as many people that will receive it. And perhaps all of the rockiest parts of our story are a mercy because they keep us uncomfortable enough here on this earth to remind us that this is not our home. And while we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God, representing our king here for a short time, we're not supposed to get so comfy on this earth soil that we become complacent and we put all of our energy into growing a big and sprawling life, investing in things that aren't going to last, that we cannot take with us into eternity, to the neglect of bearing fruit. He wants us to invest our lives in reproducing into making disciples because that's the only treasure we're carrying with us from this world into the one that endures. And he wants to reward us and reward us well in eternity. He wants us to store our treasures with him where they're going to last. But he knows us and he loves us and he knows that we're creatures of comfort and given the choice, we're just as prone as a grapevine to opt for the easy way And instead of going to the trouble of bearing fruit, we'll get all sprawly and leafy in our comfort to get and then get to the end of our lives and the beginning of forever with nothing to show for all of our living. And so I say to you and me and our soil with all of its challenges and sufferings, it is to your father's glory that you show yourself to be his disciple and bear much fruit right here in the land of your affliction. I have a dear friend, uh, Kathleen, who was diagnosed with stage four blood cancer and has twice been radically healed. And as you can imagine, going through that type of diagnosis is extremely traumatic. And recently she had some symptoms that she needed to get checked out by the doctor who had cared for her all through her journey. And she confessed that just the thought of driving back to that cancer center was just bringing up all kinds of trauma and fear in her. Because a cancer survivor learns to live with the constant whisper from the enemy. What if it comes back? On her drive there, she began speaking truth over herself and decided to go on the offensive to be about her father's business. 
She asked God to give her a sword to share with her doctor in order to bless him. Listen to this message that she sent our ministry team. My doctor was finishing up and asked if there was anything else he could help me with. I said, I have a sword for you. He said, what's a sword? And I said, you know, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I have swords for myself and I read and I read one to him, Luke 10, 19. And then I said, I use these swords against the enemy when he comes at me with lies. When he says, I'm going to die, I tell him, I shall not die but live, and I shall declare the works of the Lord, Psalm 118, 17. Then I said, when I woke this morning, this verse was playing on my Bible app. I play the Bible all night long, and wherever it is at when I wake, I feel like it's a message from God for me or someone near me. So I highlighted this verse, and then on the drive here, I felt like the Lord told me the message was for you. So while I was in the waiting room, I wrote it down for you. Here's the verse. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I want to give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Matthew 25, 21. I then told him how the master must be so pleased with him that he was a good and faithful servant and that he has saved the lives of many and he has been a messenger for Christ. My doctor was really quiet and just looked at the sword in his hand. He seemed emotional, but he didn't cry. A little too emotional, I thought, for a Bible verse on an index card. Finally, he said, I don't know if I should tell you this. I think he was contemplating if he could leave his professional realm in order to tell me something personal. Then he looked at the wall and then at the sword again. Then he said, about a month ago, Our priest was talking about the fig tree that wasn't producing fruit, and the gardener pleaded for more time to fertilize it and make it produce, and then if it isn't producing, he could destroy it. He then said, I came home a wreck. I thought, oh no, I am a fig tree. He said the next day at work at OSU, he went to the campus ministry and went to the pastor and and walked in, and he closed the door, and he said, I have a problem. I am a fig tree. The man looked at him as if he were out of his mind and actually looked like he was going to call campus security. My doctor said the man gave him some verses and sent him on his way, but it didn't suffice, and he's been quite miserable for the last month. Then he said, you walk in here, and you hand me my answer. And he held out the sword. Right in the middle of her rocky soil of affliction, Kathleen is producing rich fruit that's sharing the life and the nature of God with people who need to know what God is like. As Kathy told me this story around a fire at our house, she was heartbroken that this doctor believed he wasn't bearing any good fruit. And he was even thank- she was even thankful that God allowed her to experience these symptoms so she could deliver this message to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. Now I will give you even more. He tasted what God is actually like, the nature of the vine and the vine dresser from the fruit of my friend Kathy. I want to close by reading the rest of Jesus' words in this passage of John 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so, what, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. In his commentary on this verse, Dr. Leon Morris writes, It is no cheerless, barren existence that Jesus plans for his people. But the joy of which he speaks come only as they are wholehearted in their obedience to his commands. To be half-hearted is to get the worst of both worlds. And I deeply believe this to be true. We resist offering ourselves wholly to anyone or anything that has the potential to encroach on our personal desires. And Jesus made clear from the start that God's will and our will would be in conflict at times. Yet, our surrender to Jesus is also and ultimately our surrender to joy. The abiding life is a fruitful life. The fruitful life is a life of purpose and significance. And it's a life of joy made complete. It is to your Father's glory that you bear much fruit. So remain in his love and then go and bear fruit. Let's pray. Father, I bless your people with a life of fruitfulness. And I just pray right now that the rain of your spirit would fall that you would reveal lies and clutter in our soil that is keeping us shallow. I pray that you would show us where you want to uproot thorns and weeds that are stealing our resources. I pray that you would plant your words in our hearts and that they would bring us to life and make us good soil. And I pray that you would teach us to abide in you, to stay close and connected to you, to receive your word and participate with your pruning. We give you permission right now to come. Cut off branches in us that are producing bad fruit or no fruit at all. Relationships, commitments, entertainment, distractions, whatever it is. We ask you to train us in the way of the cross so that we are more and more conformed into the likeness of Jesus. We ask you to make us fruitful right here where you've planted us. Right in the middle of our affliction. And I ask that your words would abide in your beloved and that your joy would flow into them and that your joy would be made complete to your great glory. Amen and amen.